Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Radio Imbibe from Imbibe Magazine. I'm Paul Clark, Imbibe's Editor-in-Chief, and this is the final episode of this podcast for 2022, coming to you just as we're heading into the heart of the holiday season. For this episode, we're going to take a bit of a departure from what we've done before the holidays the last couple of years, and we're going to spend a little time remembering one of our good friends and a member of the Cocktail Royal family who passed earlier this year. Brother Cleve was at the head of the Cocktail Revival before there was really a Cocktail Revival. A touring musician with bands including the Del Fuegos and Combustible Edison, a professional DJ, a bartender, a brand ambassador, and eventually a bar owner, Cleve lived the fullest of lives you could imagine. Brother Cleve was instrumental in helping to establish Boston's modern cocktail culture, and in his travels and the many, many friendships he made over the years, he was always so generous with his time and with sharing the information he'd gleaned along the way, bringing the party along with him and making sure everyone always had a good time. We profiled Brother Cleve in 2017 with Robert Simonson, talking about the role he'd played in cocktail culture. But Cleve wasn't done yet, and more recently he'd helped open a new cocktail bar in New York City, Lullaby, with veteran bartender Brian Miller. Brother Cleve died suddenly in September while traveling in Los Angeles, and there are scores of people who could share stories of the role he'd played in their lives. For this episode, we're talking with three of those people. Jackson Cannon from Eastern Standard in Boston, about to make its grand return. Jeff Berry from Beach Bum Berry's Latitude 29 in New Orleans. And Patrick Sullivan, a Boston restaurateur and former owner of the B-Side Lounge in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of the formative bars in Boston's cocktail scene. As we settle in, I should note that the music we're going to hear is from Brother Cleve himself, Stardust Air, provided to us by Cleve's longtime friends and used with the permission of his wife, Diane. Jackson, Patrick, Bum, welcome to Radio On Vibe. Great to be here, Paul. Thanks, man. Good to be here. You know, I, I'm so appreciative that you guys have come together today and joined me because I've known, you know, Jackson and, and Jeff, I've known you for many years. Patrick, it's great to meet you. And it's always such a great pleasure to speak with you. And when we were talking recently at Imbibe, uh, how we could best honor the memory of our friend, Brother Cleve, who passed earlier this year, you were the first people I thought of. And I should mention at this point, you know, we, we'd hoped to have Misty Kalkoffin as part of this conversation, a great friend of, of Cleve's. She's, she was unable to join the call, uh, but she's in her hearts and we're thinking of her and wishing she were here with us now. Cleve played a big role in so many lives, and today I'd like to focus on the role he played uh, in the cocktail world and the music world and the culture of getting together with friends for the sake of joy. Can we start with Boston? Uh, you know, Jackson, I think, you know, when I first met you in 2006, you you were telling me about this guy in Boston and the things that he was doing, and and you and Patrick knew him for, for many years. Yeah, well, you don't get a title like Godfather of the Boston cocktail scene from... <laughs> You know, not having a, a kind of staying power and a kind of original influence that Cleve had on all of us. I used to tell people, you know, like Misty was his most accomplished protege, probably. But if she hadn't influenced him, I don't know if I would have, you know, she was such a heavy influence on me. I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing without Cleve's indirect and then direct influence when I got to to know him better. He was he was deep in so many different things and he was such a fountain uh, and of information, a generous spirit. I was thinking, I'm, I, I flew down to Charlotte today for a, a job and I was thinking, damn, I wish I had, I wish I had Cleve's list for, 
for Charlotte because he knew he knew so much about Americana, about music, about drinking and eating all over the world, and would connect you with it um, at a moment's notice. So yeah, missing him today for sure, and and you know really grateful uh, for you for putting a chance together for us to remember some of his antics and you know established great ways of doing things. And and Patrick, you you had known him for many years there in Boston. Uh, correct. Yeah. Uh, Brother Cleve was, you know, in 1998, I opened a place called the B-Side Lounge in Cambridge. And I had met Cleve uh, several years before. I think I was actually bartending at a bar that hosted Cleve's, four, I think it was his 40th birthday party. And, uh, and this is before cocktail bars. And this is just, you know, this was at a pool hall. And uh of course, Cleve found his way to the service bar and was just in my ear. And, you know, we were making and drinking many, many cocktails, you know, and then, and then, so I decided somewhere along the way, um, while working, um, at these bars, I was going to try and open my own bar. And it took a, you know, it took a few years to, to put together. And, um, in that, in the meantime, you know, this is, a, this is in the early nineties, mid nineties, the internet has just sort of come to life. And I don't even know how I was searching, but I would come home from work from bartending and I would search cocktails and, um, and, and brother Cleve's name kept coming up and I knew I had met him, you know? And, uh, and so before there were cocktail bars, like, so I'd go to New York and they were like vodka bars. They weren't even cocktail bars. And, um, and so when it came time, when I signed the purchase and sale agreement, I saw in the uh, sort of one of the um, papers in Boston that Brother Clee was DJing at Bill's Bar. And so I went down there and, um, and waited for his set break and said and got his attention and said, hey, Brother Cleve, I just bought the Windsor Tap. And I said, I'm going to turn it into a cocktail bar. And he just said, yes. And he hugged me. And um, I, I didn't even get a chance to say, would you come work? You know what I mean? He said, yes. He says, I love the Windsor Tap. And the Windsor Tap was this old bucket of blood gin mill that uh, we converted into uh, into the B-Side Lounge. And then to just, you know, sort of echo what Jackson said, you know, Cleve brought so much spirit and generosity and sort of legitimacy to all of this. And particularly local. And it wasn't so, you know, just a, a, you know, a couple months into the, to the B side, Cleve said, so Cleve was there opening night at the, behind the bar at the B side lounge. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of months, we're getting our hats handed to us. It's so busy. He says, I have a friend who wants to move back from Florida and, um, you know, she, she's a great bartender. I think we should bring her on. And, you know, two weeks later, Misty walked through the front door, you know, carrying her apron from, I think, Margaritaville. And, um, and the rest is history. She, she became, you know, she lent so much sort of credibility to the whole thing, you know, an incredible addition to the, to the team there. So that's how I met Cleve. 
Right, right. And, you know, you're mentioning, you know, this is the 1990s. And, and you know, to put this in the context for people, there wasn't really a cocktail thing in the 1990s. There, you know, no. there's there's Dale DeGroff doing his thing in New York. There's, you know, you know, kind of some stirrings of things in London. Uh, but Cleve was there ahead of everybody else uh, in, in searching out these things and talking about these things and introducing cocktails to, to a lot of folks. How did he how did he play that role in Boston? You know, at the, the B-Side Lounge, uh, as you're kind of turning your direction this way, how is he bringing that kind of knowledge and experience and, and curiosity that he, that he had. So it was interesting how, how he got into that. I mean, at the point that Patrick's doing that, Cleve had been making great cocktails at home as a subversive act during the grunge era for 10 years, you know? And it's hard to think of it that way, but Combustible Edison, this influential band that he was a part of, um, you know, literally was, was making great cocktails as protest to the current state of our macro culture, you know? Um, they had a manifesto, you know, and, and it was, um, I, I mean, the album title, I Swinger kind of says a lot. Um, and so he'd been kind of a, a true pioneer, lighting stuff on fire and making proper Manhattans um, in a through line that, you know, it was part of his personality. What was great is that if something old was great, he knew everything about it he could possibly find out and he wanted to breathe life into it. If something new was great, it fit right in to that in, in, in permanent continuum of, of things that were great. So he, as thorough as he was, he wasn't a preservationist for its own sake. Um, and he believed that these things were great. We figured this drink out 100 years ago and why shouldn't we keep all enjoying them? I mean, um, and he, he championed kind of the conviviality and the rituals, I think, and Pat might remember more about his connection to Esquivel, but when he got back from meeting Esquivel was the first time I ever was sat down for the proper tequila service with sangrita and, and salts and citruses. And that's, again, that's the 90s. So um, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about, like how he became an expert was by sheer force of curative personality in him that he, you know, he was lighting that fire before there were legion. You know, for sure, it was like a solo act in that sense. Yeah. You know, during these years, he's he was a touring musician, touring DJ, he had been since the '80s, uh, and also, as we all know, Clee was a master conversationalist. He would talk to anybody forever, and you know, all, all you had to do was just like sit down on a bar stool next to him, and you know, an hour later, you're deep in some kind of story, and and it's and and, and that's a wonderful evening. I remember one story he shared shared with me one time, and it made me think of him kind of like as almost a Johnny Appleseed of the cocktail world, where he was traveling, he's on tour in the '90s, and he was telling me he's looking for orange bitters. You know, he's trying to find orange bitters so he can make, you know, is it a martini or, or maybe even a more specialized cocktail that he wanted to make. And it was the 90s. Where are you going to find orange bitters? And they were playing in Cincinnati. I'm probably going to massacre the story, but they're playing in Cincinnati. Uh, and there, you know, it may have even been like, an, you know, a Saturday morning. Uh, he found the thing that he had been looking for and he'd been searching for forever. And I can just picture him, you know, being in Cincinnati of all places and finding orange bitters and, you know, being, yeah, you know, moving on to that next level. And, and, and then spreading that word around. And, you know, next thing you know, you're all looking for orange bitters, too. He used to bring patients back from New Orleans for me, you know, pack a suitcase with the stuff yeah. and bring it back to town. Right. You know, so. right. And we should note at some point how Robert Toomey from Medford, Mass. became Brother Cleve. Wasn't that the uh, Church of the Subgenius? Was, yeah. it, was that connection where he changed his yeah, name? Yeah, the Church out? of the Subgenius. Yeah. 
I had been in contact with him for almost 15 years before I ever found out that his name wasn't Brother Cleve from Honest Book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I asked for his home address because I wanted to send him something uh, when people still did that. And uh, he said, yeah, it's Robert Toomey. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I think it was the subgenius, which is uh, you know, just sort of like this uh, zine era, um, alternative culture, punk, fake religion that, uh, I mean, I knew of it. I never signed up for it. But it was out in L.A. too. But I think he got deeper into it. Well, he oh, was ordained. He was ordained. I believe he officiated as a right as a as an ordained member of the sub. I forget what his title was, but uh, um, I mean, yeah, the whole, I whole philosophy was the philosophy. It was, it was sort of a proto slacker movement. The philosophy was slack. You know, just we believe in slack and just not working mm -hmm. and pursuing enjoyment in all its forms, which was a perfect. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better religion for Cleve than that or all of us for that matter. And, you know, uh, you all know Cleve's life story and he'd share everything, every experience freely. How did that traveling musician experience, you know, going around the country, going to bars, uh, talking to people, how did that translate into him becoming a cocktail person and kind of like spreading that information, especially there in Boston at the beginning? Cause you know, he had, he had life experiences that nobody else by in the bar had. As a bartender, you know, uh, you mentioned it earlier, Cleve was just this great conversationalist, you know, and uh, and drinks with Cleve, whether it was a bottle of Budweiser and Cleve was the original Budweiser brother. OK. And uh, but there was a certain ceremony to, you know, an, an unannounced or an unintentional ceremony when you were having a drink with Cleve, whether it's a bottle of Bud, a shot of tequila and and these, you know, and he would just sort of just share all of his experiences from traveling, you know, and if you were lucky enough, like, you know, Jackson and I, you know, worked very closely with Cleve over the years, we would personally benefit, you know, our guests would benefit, everyone would benefit. And he was just, uh, this ceremony was just so fun and genuine, you know, it's, um, that's how I, I see it. You know, I just, before here, I, uh, before we get on, I, I just opened up my, uh, my text chain with Cleve, you know, and you won't be surprised to hear that it's just the most ridiculous sort of stream <laughs> of, you know, where's a great place to get, you know, a shot of tequila and, you know, Shiner Box and Corpus Christi to, you know, who's got the cold, we have this decades long chain of who's got the coldest beer coolers. Okay. And the last text I, I had with Cleve was, was, uh, you know, I had found the uh, the coldest beer cooler to date, and it's uh, sadly it didn't hold Budweiser. It held Heineken, but Cleve says that he was flexible, and he, he, he <laughs> go there. Uh, so it was, you know, Cleve was just so many things, and he was he was fun, he was light, he was serious without taking himself serious at all, you know? And so that's how his, his sort of worldly experience and, um, you know, he had a story for everything. And I jokingly say that, you know, as a bartender, you know, Cleve did, you know, Cleve was great with one guest for a long time, you know, and <laughs> that, you know, I'm still waiting for Cleve to finish the, an old fashion. He started for me in 1998. <laughs> You know what I mean? But happily, and, uh, happily waiting. But you know? it was <laughs> yeah. happily waiting, you know? And uh, and so, it, I don't know, that it's just, he just 
celebrated life and um and and he loved the act of the ceremony of drinking with a friend he I mean, loved there's, it, a, there's a kind of another like angle to where why he was such a great resource i think was part of what we were, we were talking about and it's it's because he was passionate on, about the different layers of it. it wasn't just about a great cocktail or a cold beer and all the attendant ritual but so recently i was headed into wildwood new jersey for one night stopover with my kids on a summer vacation and i I, I, you know, as I, I knew his connection to that through Tiki by the Sea, and and I had never been, and I texted him, what's good? And, you know, he's like, well, I'm here, first of all, which was also just like a fun part of it. But, you know, not only did he have like the lockdown on the three different best places for crabs and which one was open on Monday, it was like I was in a vintage arcade playing like uh, an original Space Invaders and Asteroids with the kids, and then... I was given the right street to drive down to see the vintage neon and a whole lesson on why doo-wop is so important to Wildwood and how as kind of Philadelphia's beach party town, it was uh, an incredibly important part of how that art form developed along with like artists that I probably hadn't heard of that I should have that I could listen to to complete the experience. So like him just thinking whole hog about life like that is one of the reasons he was the greatest travel log person I could ever imagine, you know? Um, and, you know, it's not even, doesn't even really cover like, uh, as, as Patrick says, like his sense of humor and stuff, but that to that educational element of him, it was that it, cause it hit on all these different levels that it was just so meaningful. And there was such an embrace of like every aspect of life. You know, they're just this pure, uh, eternal joy, uh, in, in the everyday things like you're, you were talking about the beer coolers, you know, the, the simple, you know, the, the, the beautiful simplicity of, of cold beer and, and neon signs that, that was part of his makeup and sharing that and really fully embracing that it was, it was much more, uh, you know, we're talking about the church of the sub genius, but this is also, you know, much more Zen than, you know, than a lot of people go. Uh, can we talk about the Jack Rose for a moment? Because Jackson, when, I, when you and I first met in 2006, you, you were telling me about this guy that you knew and and your pursuit of the ultimate Jack Rose. And again, this is 2006, kind of the early years of the cocktail renaissance and kind of focusing in on a drink, but also not just because of for the sake of the drink, but because of what it meant of understanding the processes and things involved. How, how was Cleve involved in that? And, and just fill us in on that a little bit. Well, like Misty and I and Cleve and his wife Dial lived in a house in Somerville, which was a good time. It's in the era of the B-side. Every now and then I would supply a little mint from the garden. More often than not, I would go over there to get Budweiser after hours. Pat was willing to send me out the back with some. And we, in a part, in an outgrowth, a little bit of my like earnestness to discover the right way to make a Jack Rose because, and, and Cleve's like sense of elevating any frivolous activity to an expression with dignity. Um, we had this idea of sort of the Jack Rose Society. It really was like the three of us making drinks and, you know, listening to whatever the latest playlist was, um, sometimes experimenting, but the, it, we got our name from the first time I was like, hey, I want to get this figured out because I've got this recipe says lime juice, this one says lemon, this old book has patience. Books weren't as prevalent and the internet was not easy to use the way that it is now. So Cleve did the kind of the research in all of his books and typed up 20 different recipes. And as you can imagine, setting our course on a full portion exploration of the best one, 
the events at the end of the Jack Rose meeting is are hazier than they were at the beginning. But um, we didn't even agree, which was another kind of point of which one was best. And um, but it was just the process, I guess, of like finding that information and sharing it. And so the drink had hold held special sway for me from before that time. But at that moment, that's when you know this kind of idea of like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna push this cocktail out there. It was on the opening menu of Eastern Standard in 2005. So this this little research project took place in late 2004. He he had a he had a proclamation. I th I don't know where it is, but it was like, "Hear ye, hear ye! The first Royal Order meeting of the Society dedicated to the Jack Rose is in session." You know, like, um, you know, you know. Of course, <laughs> it was amazing. Well, you know, we were talking about Cleve as a musician a few minutes ago and the style of stuff that he played and the kind of the, the, the loungy, ironically evocative of mid-century lounge music kind of thing. There's an interesting Venn diagram you could make between that kind of side of cocktail culture and tiki bars and tiki culture. I think, you know, there's a lot of overlay there. And it's not surprising that Cleve also found himself on, on both sides of that equation. Jeff, you know, as, as we get closer to, to the contemporary time, how did you see Cleve embracing and exploring the realm of tropical bars and tropical drinks and that whole culture that goes along with it? How did this kind of appeal to him and how did he just fit right in with that? Well, the interesting thing was that I knew I knew of Cleve and Cleve knew of me almost 20 years before. Well, no, I knew of Cleve about 20 years before I actually met him. He knew of me maybe 10 years before we actually met. And we, the parallel tracks we were on in the pre-internet age when we thought we were the only person in the world interested in this shit um but th that being exotica music tiki bars cocktails etc cetera, etc cetera, everything we've been talking about cleave was amassing this enormous amount of knowledge about exotica music and lounge music and basically created the scene the whole cocktail nation scene um based drawing from everything that he all the records he'd collected and all the knowledge he collected and all the people who he talked to um whereas i was doing that with cocktail recipes out in uh, LA, actually talking to living people who in some cases created or served those cocktails back in the golden age of forties and fifties, they were still around. Cleve was doing the same thing musically. I mean, we mentioned Esquivel, uh, one of the guiding lights of the um, lounge music era, the Vegas, you know, kind of uh, instrumental exotic music. He didn't just collect Esquivel records and find out about Esquivel. He sought Esquivel out and met him and went to Mexico city and lived with him. Um, and gather stories, including one about, I mean, I think you've all probably heard the flying car story, how Esquivel purchased a flying car and nobody believed him, but Cleve actually saw it in the girl. Anyway, that's, that's a little aside there, but he's, he collects people uh, in addition to collecting old books and old records. And he synthesizes all that into something uh, for the, um, the contemporary zeitgeist. I mean, that's, that's where the cocktail nation thing happened. That's where that whole underground lounge music swing big band you know revival came from so i was uh, tracking him as a fan of the music that he was doing i was a fan of combustible edison i actually saw the del fuegos i didn't know, even know who he was or that he was in the band when i saw them in the 80s um, but i became aware of him through primarily through combustible edison and i i remember buying one album i think jackson it was i swinger where not only did it have that cool retro cover that I used to encounter, you know, in used record stores all the time that's sort of based on that. It had a cocktail recipe on the back. Cocktail recipe. You know, yeah. a flaming cocktail recipe on the back. It's like, who the, who are these people? You know, and it's like, um, uh, long story short, a few years later, because he's a collector, a collector of people and a connector of people, um, 
I met him through his for the mutual friends, the Waitiki um, Boston based Exotica band. And I met him virtually on the Internet. And Patrick, you cracked me up when you mentioned the text exchange, because before we actually physically met, uh, we had an email exchange that lasted five years um, and most of it was cleave. I mean, I would wake up in the morning. I'd see that at 3 a.m. he had written like a novel, you know, about Bollywood music and about the tracks I needed to hear. And here's some links. And and uh, and then the next thing would be about some old bar book he found with a, an alternative recipe that we've been discussing. And these emails, believe me, if I printed them out, I, there wouldn't be I'd kill a tree. You know, so um, he just his enthusiasm, his ability to take that enthusiasm and do something new with it. Um, and, and that was true of cocktails, too. I mean, he came up with some kind of brilliant recipes um using stuff that nobody was using back in the day i asked him for a recipe for one of my books and he gave me a recipe with prickly pear um syrup and i never even heard of that even though i was in california where that stuff just was everywhere you know um and it was really creative and layered and um and he kind of irritated me because nobody should be that good at that many things i mean nobody should be that good as a mixologist nobody should be that good as a musician and nobody should be that good as, um, you know, a historical inquiry guy. And I don't even know about the, uh, he was probably a great priest too. <laughs> and, you know, more, more recently, uh, he had just opened up in partnership, a bar in New York city, which was, you know, bold, you know, I, you know, honestly, I, I hadn't seen that coming. I didn't know he was uh, going to go into that, but that was, I thought that was really cool when uh, he opened lullaby with, with Brian yeah. Miller. That's another thing I'll, I'll be internally grateful to cleave to um, is almost everybody I met. I either met them through Tales of the Cocktail before I met Cleve, or I met them through uh, Jackson. I met you through Cleve uh, when I, Cleve got me to Boston to do a gig in two thousand and seven. I think it was at uh, I don't know if, uh, what's the name of the place. Oh, uh, Republic. Yeah, the Vietnamese place. Right. Um, we, we did a gig there, and then he took me to your bars, uh, and um, I had a great Jack Rose. Uh, man, that. You were talking about the Jack Rose, that kind of triggered that memory, which is great. But that's how I met you. That's how I, um, I'm, Brian and Cleve and I were kind of this triumvirate because we were at a, at a certain point where the only people in the early phase of the cocktail revival who didn't dismiss Tiki as just uh, syrupy, slushy cruise ship drinks. And that as, as part of the problem for the craft cocktail renaissance, Tiki was part of the problem. Just don't get rid of it, don't use it. And Cleve, of course, with his knowledge and his uh, ability to persuade, um, you know, got people to drink those drinks in Boston and they got Brian to start doing it in New York. And, and eventually we all hooked up and for better or worse, here we are. You know, so it was just great seeing him nurture, uh, the young, the young tenders there too, Harrison. And, uh, um, well, that, like last time I saw Cleve, we were at a little place in, in the Quincy town we, we both live next to, and he was chatting tomorrow's and, and helping tweak a daiquiri variation recipe that a 23 year old bartender was working on. And, um, you know, he was, he was at a, he was at a point where, um, you know, he, he knew so much of, in so many different things, but he never, he never like didn't enjoy like helping somebody along a basic part of their journey, you know? So that was kind of, to me, that was like sort of the promise of, of his, his role in lullaby that unfortunately we won't, we won't see ongoing, but, um, but you, you know, if you made a tree off of the people he touched, <laughs> you would have quite a forest of many different species. There's that to celebrate. Absolutely. Well, are, are there any last thoughts you'd like to share about Cleve uh, before we before we wrap up? 
Yes, I, I would. I uh, I recently had uh, one of the most beautiful sort of cleave related experiences was just in the days right after he passed and there was the initial sort of obituary write-ups in the paper and I currently co-own a, a, a bar and restaurant in the suburbs of Boston and I was doing my thing touching tables and saying hello to people and this this foretop people sort of our age a little older you know said are you Patrick and I said yes and they they just started to ask me questions about Cleve. And one of the gentlemen was a musician, and he and he just said, I just can't believe I never met him. And they just went on and on and on, and they wouldn't let me leave the table. And they wanted to hear stories. And, and in, I'd be telling them, like, just telling them a little bit about Cleve and sort of, and, and this one gentleman who was the musician just kept, like, throwing his hands on his knees and saying, I just can't believe I never met this guy you know? And, and so it was, it was hard to talk about Cleve at that time, you know, and, and uh, I was a little emotional and I'll never forget. They said, we just wanted to come here today and try and feel some of that magic. And they were like using someone who knew him to try and, you know, just based on the things that they read, these were complete strangers impacted by cleave in this peripheral way and just wanted to I, I, verify that it was all true because you know how could this all be true and so it was just a beautiful moment i was so proud of cleave and just so happy that for them that they were there and it was just this beautiful moment you know and that and that in a nutshell was really you know cleave you know, that's how we impacted people. These were complete strangers. That's beautiful. You know? That's a beautiful story. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share these stories with us and to, to remember Brother Cleve. And happy holidays to all of you. Thanks for having us, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Back at you. for joining us as we remember Brother Cleve. He was such a big-hearted person, and we all need more people like him in our lives. Here's wishing a happy and healthy holiday season to you and yours. We'll catch you again in 2023 as we dive into the new year. Be sure to subscribe to Radio Imbibe on your favorite podcast app to keep up with all of our future episodes. We've got plenty of recipes and articles for you online at imbibemagazine.com, and keep up with us on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter. And if you're not already a subscriber to the print and or digital issues of Imbibe, then let's get 2023 started right. Just follow the link in this episode's notes, and we'll be happy to help you out. I'm Paul Clark, this is Radio Imbibe. Happy holidays, everyone, and I'll catch you in the new year.